0: Well, if we've never met, my name is Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here of the city church and, uh, we're honored to have you with us today. I've been a pastor for nearly 20 years. I've done youth ministry and college ministry and all kinds of different things. And we started this church a little over two years ago and God's done great things. And over the last nearly 20 years though, I've done a lot of weddings and funerals. Now I know you're thinking Clayton, uh, you wear jeans and like t-shirts and button-ups and stuff. is that what you do a wedding and funeral in? No. I've got one suit, I've got one, (laughs) it's only one, but I've got one. Now that suit over the years has changed some, like I had to get a bigger suit at one point, and then I lost some weight and I had to get rid of that suit and get a smaller suit that fit a little bit better. And then since then, I've gotten a little bit bigger, so I had to get a little bit bigger suit. So that one suit has changed over the years. It's become different suits, but I've still got one suit that I do weddings and funerals in. And maybe you'll get to see me in that suit one day, you know, right? if you're lucky, if it's a wedding, right? <laughs> Not, but uh, maybe, maybe one day you'll see me in that suit. You won't ever see it here, but maybe one day you'll see it. And uh, you'll feel really special after you've seen me in a suit. I promise. That's what my wife tells me anyway. She thinks I look really good in a suit. So, but here's the thing. One day uh, at, at your funeral, people are going to have some things to say about you. Now, some of those things are going to be sad. Some of those things, and here's what I've learned over years and years of doing funerals and spending time with family. Some of those things are going to be funny. Okay, because part of the grieving process and as believers, we get to grieve and mourn with hope, but part of that process and part of that healing process is also laughing. And so I asked our staff this week, I have some of my friends and uh, family, my brothers and said, Hey, what are some of the funny things? I know you're going to be devastated. I know you're going to be weeping and crying when I'm gone. And I know you will be too. I know you love me so much and you're going to be so devastated when I'm gone one day. Okay. But there's also going to be, I promise you, if Brandon and Mark have anything to do with my funeral, you know, there's going to be some laughing at my expense. Okay. There, there just will be. And so I asked our staff and family and friends, I just said, Hey, what are some of the funny things you would say about me? And I'm going to share some of those each week in this series. Uh, but here's the one from this week. All right. One of our staff members said your clothes will finally fit because your body will have atrophied so much. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? My, Hey, <laughs> Laura Tatum. Uh, <laughs> I think she knows where that might've come from. Um, but I'm thinking, I don't even understand why that's funny. My clothes fit just fine. I, I like the way my, my clothes fit, but when you When you are grieving, part of what helps is the laughing. It's, it helps the grieving process. And the scripture tells us Solomon wrote one of the wisest Kings to men to ever have lived. The Bible says Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse four. He said this, a wise person thinks a lot about death. Isn't that interesting that it's wise to think, not just to think some, but to think a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. So Solomon says, it's a, you're, you're foolish to not ever live like you're going to die one day, to live in light of your tombstone. It's foolish to not assume and to know that you're going to die one day and to live in light of that fact. And Solomon says, so a wise person thinks a lot about death, thinks a lot about that day. And when you die, chances are, if you're part of our church, I'll probably do your funeral and I'll be meeting with your family and asking them, what are some of the things that you love about them? And they're gonna tell me stories and they're gonna be good stories. They're gonna be great stories. And there's gonna be some funny stories. But let me ask you this, probably the most important question in this series. What would you want them to say about you? Think about that. A wise person thinks a lot about death. What would you want your family and friends, those closest to you, to say about you on the day you die? What would you want them to say about you? If there were three things that could be put on your tombstone that were the things that spoke about your life, the things that you cared about most in this life, the things that you were most devoted to in this life, what what would you want those three things to be? For them to say about you at your funeral, to put on your tombstone. Now, let me ask you this, probably an equally important question. Are your daily decisions today reinforcing what you once said about you? Or is there a gap? Is there a gap between what you once said about you one day at your funeral, what you want put about you on your tombstone? Is there a gap between what you once said and the way that you're living your daily life? Life, the decisions you're making on a daily basis. Is there a gap? Or are your daily decisions reinforcing what you want said about you? In this series, we're gonna start with the end in mind. We're gonna look at the end, we're gonna look at the tombstone, and we're gonna work our way backwards to try to ensure that there's not a gap, a gap between what we once said and what will actually be said. In this series, We're gonna talk about three things that I want written about me on my tombstone, that I would want people to say about me at my funeral and why I think these things should be what you want said about you too. So we're gonna call these three things, the three stepping stones to your tombstone. The three stepping stones to your tombstone. Now, all the verses and the points, everything we're going to be talking about today are in, in our app, the City Church Lubbock. If you don't have that, you can download that in your app store, uh, the City Church Lubbock. Then click message notes and you can follow along with this. You can even fill in the blank here in just a second as we go. It's a great way to lean in, stay engaged and make the most out of our time together. So just click message notes in our City Church Lubbock app. So three stepping stones to your tombstone. We're gonna look, we're gonna work backwards, all right? These are, each one of these will be a stepping stone that we have to hit, that we have to step on every day in order to make sure that these things are written about us on our tombstone. So here's the first, here's the first stepping stone. Here's the first thing I want said about me on my tombstone. He loved Jesus. That's the number one thing I want said about me at my funeral, the number one thing I want written about me on my tombstone, he loved Jesus. Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you've just kind of been a a, a casual church attender most of your life, you may think that's a little extreme. Why Jesus? Why would you want Jesus to be the number one thing that's talked about you, the number one characteristic of your life, the number one passion of your life? Why would you want it to be Jesus? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two reasons why I believe that our love for Jesus should be the number one thing written about us on our tombstone or said about us on our funeral. Here's the first reason. Number one, Jesus conquered death. Another way you could say this is Jesus is Lord. That was the earliest Christian confession. It was the earliest Christian creed of those first Christians in the first century. They believed and they would say Jesus is Lord. That's how you knew someone was a follower of Jesus. They would say, Jesus is Lord. And they believe Jesus is Lord because Jesus conquered death. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three through nine. And there's some verses in here. Here's what's really cool about these verses we're about to read. They are the earliest Christian confession and creed that we have recorded anywhere. These words right here that Paul writes that he records are actually a confession that early Christians would say to each other. And they recited in their church gatherings. And it goes all the way back. These words go all the way back. They're traced all the way back to within one to two years after the resurrection of Jesus, these words were repeated on a regular basis, like a creed. And so Paul says, what I passed on to you was most important. So Paul says, what we're about to read, this is the most important thing in all of the scripture, which means it's the most important thing in all of life. It doesn't get any better than this. This is the best news ever. This is the gospel. It doesn't get any deeper than this. In other words, we don't ever move on from the words that Paul's about to write. This isn't the stuff that we cover in kids class and we don't ever talk about again because this is for little kids. No, this is the most important thing in all of the scripture, in all of life. It doesn't get any deeper or better than this. Paul says, this is most important. What was passed on to me. Watch this, Christ died for our sins. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus died in your place for your sin through his death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place for your sin. What that means is, is that that death that Jesus died, the wrath of God that Jesus took on for you and for me on the cross, we owed, it was meant for us. Because we broke God's law, we pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell, where the wrath of God is poured out on sin because God is eternally and infinitely holy and righteous. He must punish sin. And that's what hell is for, is for the punishment of sinners. And Paul writes, Jesus died in our place for our sin. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, paid your fine for sin. He took on the wrath of God for sin so that you wouldn't have to experience it, so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could be made right with God. That's how much God loves you. He said he sent his one and only son to die in your place for your sin. So Jesus died for our sins, just as the scripture said, he was buried And then he was raised from the dead on the third day. So Jesus died for our sin, but then he rose from the grave conquering sin and conquering death itself. And Paul's going to say here, not only did Jesus rise from the grave and this isn't just some cute story that we believed growing up and we sang songs about in church growing up and our parents told us like some other stories maybe they told us that didn't turn out to be true and I'm not gonna get into all that because I don't wanna ruin anything, all right? But this isn't one of those stories Paul's saying. This is real, this is the truth. This didn't just happen and we don't just believe this. We don't have a blind faith, in other words. That's not, we don't have blind faith. No, we have a faith that's based on reason and facts. And so watch what Paul says. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture says, and he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. So his disciples, those closest to him, those who knew him best, he appeared to them and they saw him risen from the grave, but it doesn't stop there. After that, he was seen by more than 500 followers at one time, Jesus appeared to them more than 500 people at once. You might not have ever realized that. In fact, in Acts chapter one, it says that Jesus spent over 40 days, over a month with his disciples, hanging out with them, talking with them, teaching, eating. They spent over a month with this guy after he had died and he had risen from the grave and they saw him and more than 500 people, Paul says, at one time, at one time they saw him and he says, most of them are still alive. They could verify what I'm telling you right now, Paul said. They would tell you if I'm lying. But we all saw him and we can't deny it. More than 500 of us at one time. In fact, when Paul was on trial before, uh, for, for his life after he had been arrested in Acts and he's on trial and he's speaking with one of the Roman governors, he tells him, he says, hey, this wasn't done in a corner. We, this wasn't done for just a few people to see. You, you know it. We've all seen it. We've all seen him. We've all heard about it. Everybody's talking about it because he rose from the grave. Paul says, this wasn't done in a corner. This was done in public for all to see. Then watch this, Paul says, he was seen by James. This is the brother of Jesus. James's brother was Jesus. And Jesus had several brothers. In fact, throughout the gospels, it says many times that Jesus's brothers like James thought Jesus was crazy, right? And you would too. I mean, if your brother came up to you and told you he was the son of God, you'd say, bro, I love you, but you've lost it, okay, we're, we're done. Okay, I can't, I can't take this, I'm not gonna listen to this because this is crazy talk, right? People who claim to be God get locked up in nut houses, right, I mean, uh, we, don't, we, we don't believe them, we don't listen to them. Jesus' family, his own family, thought he was going out of his mind. And you would too, if your brother said he was the son of God. If your brother came up to you and said, hey, me and the father, God, we're one, like we're equal. If you've seen me, you've seen God. you say, Bro, you're not God. I I don't know how else to tell you this. Like they thought he was crazy. And you can understand that we all can. Well, James saw Jesus risen from the grave. And now we have a letter from James, the brother of Jesus, claiming that Jesus is his Lord and savior. And that Jesus, his brother was everything he said he was. What would change someone like that? How could you convince your brother that you are in fact God? Well, if you rose from the grave, that'd be a good start, right? If you died and then you came back to life, you might be thinking, okay, maybe there's some truth to what you're saying. I didn't believe you before, but I don't know what to do about this because you were dead and now you're alive. James saw his brother Jesus risen from the grave and he became a believer. He became a preacher. He became an evangelist. In fact, he died as a martyr in a gruesome, horrible way saying that his brother Jesus was the son of God. And then he saw him risen from the grave and later by all the apostles. So all the apostles, all of his followers saw him last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, Paul said, I also saw him for I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Paul said, I was the worst of people. I was the worst of sinners. I hated Christ's church. I hated his followers. And so Paul other scriptures tell us was breathing out murderous threats against followers of Jesus. He hated them. In fact, when he saw Jesus, when Jesus appeared to him, he was on his way to throw more Christians in jail because they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. He hated them. But Paul said he appeared to me and I couldn't deny it that there was Jesus standing before me, risen from the grave. And Paul goes from being a church persecutor to the one of the most powerful evangelists the world has ever known. And he would die a martyr's death, saying that Jesus was in fact, the son of God, that he was who he said he was, he's Lord. And he died saying he witnessed Jesus risen from the grave. Jesus proved that he's God through his conquering through his rising from the grave. When I was in college doing my undergrad at Wayland, I was doing, uh, my degree was in Christian ministry. And so one of the projects, the biggest project I had to do my entire time there, it took me a long time was to present all the alternate naturalistic theories to the resurrection. So, so the resurrection, follow me here for just a second. The resurrection is the supernatural explanation for Jesus's body not be in the tomb and for the beginning of the church and for these people, the disciples who were scared, uh, locking themselves in a house, fearful of the Romans, thinking they're next to becoming these powerful, bold evangelists and preachers of the gospel. So, so you got to explain this somehow. And the, they couldn't come up with a body. The Jews and the, the Romans couldn't come up and produce a body to show that Jesus had not risen from the grave. And so all these theories begin to pop up in order to try to explain away the supernatural explanation, which was the resurrection. And so my job was to study all the naturalistic theories and then to show why none of them proved or were able to uh, resolve all the facts of the case. And here's some things I found out. Number one, I found out, I didn't know this, but I I found out in my study that it is a historical fact, a historical fact that the disciples died as martyrs saying they eyewitnessed Jesus risen from the grave. And we have many, many documents, Roman uh, Roman and Jewish historians and their documents, their writings that talk about the lives and deaths of the disciples and their martyrdom. And that they wouldn't recant. In other words, they wouldn't go back on their belief that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. So we have many different documents, both inside and outside of the scripture that say these disciples, these followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and they died martyrs' deaths because of their faith in Christ. So that's a historical fact. No, uh, no uh, scholar disagrees with that that, 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 that that's true. Now you gotta figure out, well, why? I mean, how do we explain that? And so then all of these other theories came up. So here's the first one. Number one, first theory was the disciples were lied to. Some people saw Jesus risen from the thought they saw Jesus risen from the dead, or maybe one person did they hallucinated and they told the other disciples and they all believed what the one person said, maybe that hallucination and they believed that person. And so they all believe that Jesus rose from the grave. The problem with that though is, is we have many different disciples, many different writings, where the disciples said, we saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. We spoke with him. We ate with him over a period of 40 days. So this theory gets thrown out real quick because the testimony of the disciples in their martyrdom was that they were the eyewitnesses themselves. No one told them these things. People will die for things they believe to be true. People will die for their faith. But the disciples died for something they knew to be true. They were in the place of knowing whether it was true or false and liars make bad martyrs, which leads to the second theory that the disciples stole the body and then lied about Jesus being risen from the grave. But liars make bad martyrs. Not all of the disciples would have went to their graves knowing that what they were saying was false. People will die for something they believe to be true, but people don't die, especially this many people. They don't die for something they know to be false. Liars make bad martyrs. This theory also doesn't explain James's conversion or Paul's conversion. If there had been no body, if there had been no risen Jesus, James, the own brother of Jesus, the skeptic would not have been convinced of Jesus's resurrection. James said, I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him. my brother rose from the grave. So the disciples stealing the body doesn't fulfill James's or explain away James's conversion. It also doesn't explain Paul's conversion. Paul said, I've seen him. He appeared to me and his life was changed. The third theory was that Jesus didn't really die. It's called the swoon theory that Jesus was, Not really dead, he looked like he was dead, but when they buried him in the tomb, he wasn't quite dead and he was revived. It's called the swoon theory. The problem with this theory is that the American Medical Association has written about this now many times saying that there is no, there's virtually no way, it was absolute impossibility for Jesus to have survived the crucifixion. As they've studied the Roman method of crucifixion, that would have been absolutely impossible. All the accounts and all the stories of Jesus' death Show and they've written about it in the Journal of of, uh, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association. They've written about how it would be an impossibility for Jesus to have survived the resurrection. So that's the first reason this theory doesn't hold up. The next reasons are that Jesus's weak, bloody, wounded, and dying body would not have convinced people like James, the skeptic, or Paul, the church persecutor, that Jesus had risen from the dead. They wouldn't have said, You didn't rise from the dead. You're just, you're still dying. You're, you're, you're dying right now. Like you're almost dead as, as, as you are. Like a, a bloody, wounded, weak Jesus would not have convinced anyone to die for their faith. It wouldn't have changed the lives of the disciples, turning them from fearful people into these bold evangelists. So that theory doesn't hold water as well. And then finally, the last theory, is that they all hallucinated. Not one, but they all did. They all hallucinated seeing Jesus risen from the grave. The problem with this is, is 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing at one time. And a hallucination, or at least the story, this hallucination, this vision, would not have convinced people like James and Paul. It wouldn't have convinced them. So none of these naturalistic theories to try to explain away the resurrection hold any water. They all get disproven by the historical facts. You just got to figure out where does all the evidence point? Where does all of it lead? And Paul said for him, all of the evidence, because he saw Jesus risen from the grave, meant that Jesus was in fact God. And so Paul and James and all of the followers of Jesus made this claim, Jesus is Lord. And what they meant by that is Jesus is God, And everything that Jesus said was true. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And they all believed after seeing Jesus risen from the grave, that Jesus is Lord. And that everything he said was true. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to heaven except through him. And if Jesus is Lord, and I believe he is, that means that no one else and nothing else are worthy of our faith, our lives, our worship, or being the first thing said about us at our funeral or the first thing written about us on our tombstone. If Jesus is Lord, then nothing else and nothing less than him is worthy of that position. And the great news is that Jesus promises those that give their life to him, they'll conquer death too. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection of the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. You will conquer the grave just like I did. So that's the first reason. That's the first reason I want it to be said about me that he loved Jesus because Jesus conquered death. The second reason is this, Jesus created life. Jesus created life. You could say it like this, Jesus is designer. We said, Jesus is Lord on the first reason. You could say it like this, when Jesus created life, Jesus is our designer. He designed us from the inside out. Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter one, verses 15 and 16. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So so Jesus is God. He's the, the physical manifestation in the flesh of God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Why would I want Jesus to be the number one thing that's talked about in my life, to be the thing that's written about me on my tombstone? Well, because Jesus is supreme over all things, Paul says. For through him, watch this, for through him, God created everything. Through Jesus, God created everything. In fact, the scripture tells us that it was Jesus that created all things. And in Hebrews chapter one, that it's the word of Jesus that sustains all things, even to this day. Through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Now watch this. Everything was created through him. Okay, we've already seen that. Now watch this. And everything is created for him. Everything was created by Jesus for Jesus. So, what is God's will for your life? We ask that all the time, right? God's will for your life is very easy, it's very simple. God's will for your life, for all of us, is Jesus. You exist for Him. That's why you're on this planet. That's why you are breathing today. It's for him. It's not for another person. It's not for another pursuit. It's not for a job where you make money. The reason you are on this earth is for Jesus. You exist for him. Jesus said this in John 17, verse three, eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus is saying this. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement to make about yourself, right? That the meaning of life is, has having a relationship with God through me, Jesus Christ. But if you're Lord, you're God, then it's not arrogant or proud or boastful. It's just true. And if Jesus is our designer and we exist for him, that's the way he created us. That's the way he designed us to function then Jesus is is right. Life is about having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Henry Blackaby wrote about this verse, John 17, three, in his study called Fresh Encounter. He said this, time is then our opportunity to get to know Jesus. Time, this life, it's all about getting to know Jesus. Jesus, you exist for a relationship with Jesus. Your purpose is to love, honor, and worship and get to know Jesus. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that eternity has been set in your heart. The designer designed you with a desire for eternal things in your heart. And that's why nothing in this life will ever satisfy you. And it's why nothing else and nothing less than Jesus will ever satisfy you because eternity has been placed in your heart. The designer has designed you and wired you for a relationship with Jesus. And so nothing else will satisfy you. It's why Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. If you will come and eat from me, you will never hunger again. I'm the living water. If you will thirst from me, you will never thirst again. As long as you're going to other breads and to other wells, You will be hungry. You will be thirsty. You will never have that desire in your soul satisfied. You will never find the peace that you're longing for. But if you will come to me, Jesus said, you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. It's why the psalmist wrote, in your presence there is eternal joy and pleasure at your right hand. In your presence, Because it was the way you were designed to live this life in his presence through a relationship with Jesus. So watch this. When you make things primary that are designed to be secondary, you're always going to feel empty. When you start making things that are secondary primary, it's just going to leave you feeling empty. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter three, I count everything as worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. That's where joy and satisfaction and peace are found is in the bread of life, in the living water. Everything else when compared to that relationship with Jesus is worthless, Paul said. And when I try to take those things that always leave me feeling empty, that always bring me the pain, that always bring me the regret. When I take those things and I start making them primary, it just leaves me feeling empty. But, but if Jesus is your number one, and when you make Jesus your number one, then you can properly enjoy the number twos. If Jesus is your number one, and you seek him first, like you said, then he'll add everything else unto you as well. In other words, you can then begin to enjoy all the things in this life when you're living life the way it was designed to be lived with Jesus as your primary, as your priority, as your number one. Then everything else starts to make sense. Then I can properly enjoy my marriage and material things because they aren't number one, they aren't primary. Now I can properly enjoy those things because they're in their right order. They're in the order they were designed to be. You were created, you were designed for Jesus and nothing else and nothing less than Jesus will ever satisfy you. Going to the right college, getting the right job, finding the right spouse, making the money, getting that house, getting that car. None of those things are ever gonna satisfy. They're just gonna leave you feeling empty, but they can be properly enjoyed. If Jesus is number one, when you're living for him, when you've got a relationship with him, when I'm finding my joy and my peace in Jesus and my relationship with him, then everything else starts to make sense. And then I can properly enjoy my wife, my house, my car. I wasn't designed for those things. I was designed for a relationship with Jesus. So here's our big idea in this series. If it won't matter when I'm dead, I won't let it master me while I'm alive. It's gonna remain number two. The things that are gonna matter when I'm dead, I'm gonna keep those things number one. And listen, this is true whether you're a believer in Jesus or not. This is helpful whether you're a believer in Jesus or not to live in light of your tombstone. Because even if you aren't a follower of Jesus and even if you can't get to where I am and believe the things that that I believe, maybe you're not there yet. But this is still true. And it's still a good question to ask because it makes you start living in light of the tombstone. If it's not gonna matter when I'm dead, then I'm not gonna let it master me while I'm up. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna enjoy it. It's not gonna mean I'm, I'm not gonna do it. I, I'm still gonna go play golf every once in a while, right? But I'm not gonna let it master me because when I'm dead, I'm not gonna wish I would played more golf. So I'm not gonna let it master me. The things that are going to matter when I'm dead, those are the things that I'm going to let master me and dominate my time, my energy, my passion, my affections. But if it's not gonna matter when I'm dead, then I don't want it to master me while I'm alive. You know, when you die in less than a second, a split second, the scripture says you will be in the presence of God. To be absent from the body, the scripture says is to be present with the Lord. In less than a second, you will be standing before God in his presence. What a sobering thought. And that could be any day for any of us. The scripture says, James, the brother of Jesus said that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Our life is a mist. It's here one day and it's gone the next. A month ago, I lost a pastor friend of mine. who's a pastor in Odessa. He's younger than me, three kids, younger than, younger than my kids. Traveling to Rio Doce on a road I've traveled many times that many of you have traveled many times. Him and his wife died. All three of their kids survived. Younger than me. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Today, tonight could be your day. It could be your night. And in less than a second, you will be standing in the presence of God. For some of you, when I say that, it excites you. Some of you, when I say it, it worries you it scares you. And if it does, it probably should. Because in some ways it's, it is a scary thought. Regarding that day, here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter seven, verse 22. He said this on judgment day, on that day, when you stand before God to be judged, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. Jesus is saying there's, there's going to be people who think that because they were good people that did good things, that they will go to heaven. They're gonna assume that heaven is a good place, so that's where good people go. That if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, that, that God will let them into heaven. And so you can even read right here the assumption of, I, I did these good things, God. I was a good person. I went to church. I gave that money. I prayed that prayer. I got baptized. I took the Lord's supper. I helped this person. I was a good person. Some people are gonna stand before God thinking that good people go to heaven. Some people are gonna stand before God one day thinking there's someone they're not. These are spiritual things Jesus is talking about here. So, so, so some of us are deceived into thinking that we're something we're not. Because here's what happens next. Jesus says to these people on chapter seven, verse 23, the very next verse, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Here's what Jesus is saying. There's no one good. Every one of us have broken God's law. And so we'll pay God's fine for sin. So depart from me. I never knew you. So here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus, when you have a relationship with Jesus. Not when you go through the religious routine, not when you're going through all the religious schedule and attendance. You're, you're not right with God because you're here today. You're not right with God because you come here every week for the next year. That doesn't make you right with God. That's religion. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. This is a relationship. So the question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Because good people don't go to heaven and people, good, good church people don't go to heaven. People who have a relationship with Jesus go to heaven and people who have a relationship with Jesus know what real life is all about. They know the joy the peace, the satisfaction that comes from having a relationship with Jesus. And so when you die one day and we all will, the only thing that's gonna matter is what you've done with Jesus. Did you have a relationship with Jesus? Because this is the only thing that's gonna save you. So when you think about that day Does that day excite you or does it kind of scare you? A wise person thinks a lot about that day. It's really wise to think about this right now, to think a lot about it because there's probably nothing more important than this life than what we're talking about right now. Where you will spend eternity, there's nothing more important than that. That's all that's going to matter on that day. And if you think by being a good person or because you were baptized as an infant or because you took the Lord's Supper that that's going to make you right with God, it doesn't. The Bible says salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven. Church people don't go to heaven. You're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus, that relationship changes everything. It changes everything about this life. Changes what you care about. It changes what you desire. Changes what you think. It changes everything. So if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus before, maybe you've been playing the church game. Maybe you thought if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that that would somehow make you right with God. I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus today. Begin that relationship with him. If that's you, jump on our connect form on our app, fill out that form, check that box that says you're giving your life to Jesus today. Some of you are here and you've begun that relationship with Jesus, but you've strayed from it. It's grown cold. Kind of like Peter, when times got tough, when Jesus was arrested and he's on trial, the gospels say that that Peter began to follow at a distance. And maybe that's been you. You've been following at a distance. And I wanna invite you to hear the words of Revelation chapter two, when Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, and he said this, you've forsaken your first love. So repent, see the height from which you've fallen, see how far you've fallen away, and come back to your first love. Come back home to Jesus today and experience the peace, the joy, the, the satisfaction that comes from living the way you were designed to live. Come back home. Not long ago, I I did a funeral for a man who has come to our church since the very beginning. His name is Mark Langford. And when I met with his family a couple days before that funeral, and they talked about Mark, they talked about his life. I heard over the next couple of hours, over and over and over and over again, how much this man loved Jesus. He talked about Jesus. He loved worshiping Jesus. Every time he was here, he was giving me a huge hug, telling me how excited he was to be here. This guy was like a kid on Christmas morning when he was here. He loved praying with people. He loved getting people together to pray. He was a magician and after he met Jesus, he began to share the gospel through his presentations. He loved Jesus and he loved him so much that it was the number one thing his family talked about when I met with him. And Mark's with Jesus now. And there's nothing, I think he would say there's nothing more important for you right now than to make sure you have a relationship with Jesus. Are you living in a way right now where the people that are closest to you would say, He, she loved Jesus. Or is there a gap? Is there a gap between what you would want them to say and what they will actually say? Would you pray with me? God, I pray this morning that you would help us to think a lot about that day. Your word tells us a wise person thinks a lot about death. And so God, I pray that you would help us to think a lot about it. And God, as we think about that, as we consider that today, I pray that every last one of us would be ready for that day because we have a relationship with Jesus. And so if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that in this moment, you would draw those people to yourself, you would invite them into a relationship with you and they would come running. And God, I pray if there's any one of us that have strayed away, we've been following at a distance, we would come back to our first love. Knowing that it's the way we are designed to live this life in a relationship with Jesus. So God, we thank you that your son Jesus is the bread of life, that he is living water and that in a relationship with him, we will never hunger. We will never thirst. Thank you, Jesus. It's in his name we pray.